0: This is The Politics Lab, a podcast that puts politics under a microscope. On this week's episode, Bill and Phil begin with a segment of Phil's Campaign Corner, then ponder whether the Ukraine war has slipped into a stalemate, reflect on the death of Henry Kissinger, and finish with a game of what's more stupid, the populism edition. Now let's go to The Lab.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Politics Lab. My name is Phil Barker. I'm a professor of political science at Keene State College. And I'm joined by my colleague and best friend, Dr. Bill Muck, who's professor of political science at North Central College. Hey, Bill, how are you?
0: I'm doing great, Phil. We're almost to the end of the semester. We're we're like uh, this is the last week, and then exams and all that fun grading to get to. Uh, yeah.
1: Are, now? Are you? Do you have to? You have to teach on Friday. You have one more day of teaching this semester.
0: Yes, Friday's the last day, and then then we're done.
1: Yeah. Same with You're, me. It's it's like the. I know the students are lacking motivation. They're like so exhausted. And, and I, you know, I feel like faculty are the same. I can't quite show it in the same way the students do, but it's I, I I'm, I just am ready for a break. It'll be, it's great. I, it's the, one of the beauties of, of academia, I think is that we do this, like the the same job, but it's like, you have these, you know, starting and stopping yes. points that allow you to kind of take a breath and start over and regroup and, you know, do it however, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a, it's
0: pretty nice. It's it's the one of the best things about academia, right? Where like the, there's a start and a beginning. Uh, other jobs, you just keep going and grinding, right? Whereas uh, we have these, uh, yeah. And it, it just sort of there's there's a motivational element to that, and and if things aren't going well, you're like, okay, well we'll start over next time. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, Yeah. all right. So in other news, I was just mentioning this. So Oxford came out with their their word of the year, and the word of the year this year is "Riz." Now the question, Phil, is: Do you know about Riz, or did you know about Riz before it was the word of the year? Of course, I. I, (laughs) So so Riz. uh, Oh, go ahead
1: know, I was going to say I have heard of Riz, um, but I—if you asked me to define it, I would not. I would not be able to. I don't think.
0: Well, so the word, according to Oxford, is it defined as style, charm, or attractiveness. Um, the word it was a Gen Z creation, derived from charisma. Uh, but oh. when I saw this. I was like Riz. How is that pronounced? Where does that come from? (laughs) I that a noun or a verb (laughs) exactly. So then I asked my daughter, and she's like, "Oh yeah, I know Riz." And then she informed me I don't have Riz. But um, (laughs) so I feel like I and my students today were asking me like, "Well, when did the transition occur? When did you sort of lose touch with young people?" (laughs) I'm like, "I thought I hadn't." (laughs) But this is clear evidence that I am I am no longer connected, or I, I no longer have the Riz.
1: I do feel like uh, being around college students all the time keeps you somewhat connected. Like, I feel like I'm more in the know on, you know, whatever trends and whatnot than other, you know, old white men. But uh, yeah, it feels like that connection is uh, I, I feel like I like I said, it's like, I'm, I'm aware of this. It used to be that yeah. I was fully, I fully understood. And now it's like, I'm aware of this. It's only a matter of time till it's like, I have no, no clue what's happening. So
0: probably shorter time than you think. So but it, it,
1: probably it also, I mean, it also helps that, you know, we have whatever we've had teenagers living at home and that's yes. going to go away as well. And so we're really, we're really doomed at that point. Before we started recording, when we got on, uh, on uh, zoom here and started recording, you were trying to get set up and we're fiddling with, your microphone, and couldn't figure it out, and you flipped your reading glasses down. And <laughs> I thought it's only a matter of time until we're going to have to hire a, a 17-year-old to do the tech side of this podcast for us.
0: A hundred percent. That's that day is coming. We've we've done we've done pretty well. We're you know fighting the good fight, but eventually we know where this ends. So, um, well, we are we're going to dive into some really fun topics today. Before we do so, uh, we we might have some new listeners. North Central College did a nice promotion of the podcast uh, through their academic affairs newsletter. So if you're new uh, listening for the first time, welcome. We're happy to have you. Uh, and Phil, why don't you uh, let everybody know how they can stay connected with us outside of the podcast? Yeah, so we
1: have a webpage, page, thepoliticslab.com, and you can go there and find out all the information about the podcast, including info on Bill and I, but also it, it, our links to social media, email, all of that, but also all of our old episodes are there. And for each episode, we have um, uh, additional readings. if you If you want to read more and learn a little bit more about some of the stuff we talk about on that episode, and that's true this week, we're going to talk about... Uh, Ukraine war. And I think I've got two or three articles from The Economist up about that. Um, and then also an article about Henry Kissinger. So yeah, that's always the place, thepoliticslab.com. You can always go there and find uh, you know, the, the stuff that we're referencing and talking about in the podcast uh, is linked there.
0: That is fantastic. So, so we're going to start today with one of our oldest and favorite segments, Phil's Campaign Corner. And for our new listeners, our very own Phil Barker, Dr. Phil Barker, just happens to live in New Hampshire. And is a superstar political science professor at Keene State College, he gets to interact with presidential candidates when they come to campus for campaign events. So obviously, New Hampshire is, is right at the center of, of the campaign right now. So this week brought Dean Phillips to campus. Uh, Phillips is a moderate Democrat elected to the House in 2018 he doesn't really disagree with Biden on much of anything and instead has argued that Biden's age and low low approval ratings mean the party should nominate someone else so Phil let's start with you can tell us a little bit about the visit with Dean Phillips and the experience and all of that uh, and what you learned from this inside look at his campaign and then maybe we can preview your next candidate visit which is Chris Christie tomorrow and I think that's also yeah. a really interesting visitor so so what were you were your experiences in reaction uh to the to Dean Phillips
1: yeah, it was it was great having him on campus. I, we you know, 4 years ago, again listeners will know, we had I I think I had uh, 18, 19 different presidential candidates that, that were on campus that I got to meet with And this year because it seems to be sort of dominated by Trump and and Biden. it's been a little quieter, but uh, mm-hmm. it's starting to pick up a little bit now as we get close to the primary. But yeah, so uh, Dean Phillips um you know, contacted us and, and came to campus um and and it was it was uh, really interesting to hear. I I didn't know a whole lot about him. Um, uh, but, uh, he was very likable, um, you know, really, uh, interacted with people. Well, had, had good, quick, clear, you know, well thought out answers to questions. Again, one of the things that I've learned doing this for several years now is I'm always amazed. I'm always really impressed by people in New Hampshire. Um, we have community members, we have students who who show up and, and ask, you know, difficult pointed questions and, and they get, uh. Uh, you know, to watch candidates have to deal with that and and how they respond is really interesting. So I mean, he got he got questions from, uh, you know, one of my students was there who's conservative and was asking about gun control and whatnot, and had a really interesting exchange. So um, yeah, I mean, he's I I think Dean Phillips is a really interesting guy. So he has a really interesting life story. Um, He he uh, his his dad was killed in Vietnam when he was a baby. And so he or when he was very young, and You know, was adopted later, and and kind of you know came up in in uh, I guess in Minnesota, but um, flipped a district there in 2018 that had been Republican since like the 50s or something, and and has been reelected several times. And and I could see why um, in in this in his uh, stump speech and in his interaction with um, with people. The interesting thing, I guess, the thing to to, he talked a lot about a variety of issues. So I mean, he talked about um, you know about cost of living, about, you know, trying to wanting to reduce military spending and spend it more on, you know, uh, programs in the United States, kind of, you know, uh, straightforward democratic policy stuff, you know, it talked about, he had a question about social security and concerns that social security is going to get cut in 10 years. And, you know, he had proposed plans that he thought that he thought were simple, that could actually be done things like raising the cap on, because like, you know, you only pay social security taxes up to $160,000 in income or whatever, you know, raising that, Um, he had policies, you know, about building houses. So all of that was straightforward, but really it came down to his, his messages that he thinks that Joe Biden can't beat Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, and in not in a, like he talked a lot about how he has tremendous respect for Joe Biden. Um, but the numbers show that he's struggling, yeah. that people are are not excited. And his, the related to that is his argument that um, the stakes are too high, that Donald Trump, you know, is, is a, a danger to democracy. Um, And, you know, his thing he kept saying was he's he tried to push before he declared uh, his candidacy. He tried to push other prominent Democrats to run um, and they didn't want to do it. And his argument was like, look, if you're saving your run for 2028 um, and Donald Trump wins in 2024, there's not going to be a 2028 election. Not like we know, at least. And so his message was really interesting. It's this this message that has been out there that Joe Biden isn't, isn't the right candidate for the moment. Um, and, and I don't know, I was sort of torn on it because I, you and I have talked a lot about this, yeah. about whether or not, uh, you know, is Joe Biden sort of the most electable Would someone like Dean Phillips, who is, you know, young and, and pretty charismatic and has sort of this uh, sort of moderate, uh, approach, would he fare better? And and um, I don't, you know he was he was I guess elected into Democratic leadership in the in the House and and resigned because he declared against Joe Biden right so he was sort of pushed out of leadership but. Um, it was a, it was an interesting, I, I mean, it, he's worth you. Should, if you don't know anything about him, uh, he, he's interesting. It'd be, you know, you should look him up, read a little bit about him, find a speech and, and watch it. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, we, we've talked a little bit about this. Have you changed yeah. your mind at all on this? Or I don't remember where we settled it. I, do you feel like... <sighs> are the democrats sort of best off with joe biden or or is somebody like dean phillips right and that this is like the the stakes are too high to be taking sure. a risk when the numbers continue to show danger
0: for joe biden um in the in the 2024 election it's it's such the quintessential question for democrats right now and and i think there's a, the, the thing i think about it, and this is i'm curious to to hear about the dean phillips team is that it's not just the candidate right so it's also the organization the structure the institution all of that right and part of the reason joe biden has been so good both uh, on the campaign trail also as president, as he surrounds himself with good people, lots of money right. and the best, right? I mean, so his campaign is going to be fantastic. Um, and as long as Joe Biden is alive, you know that that team is going to be strong. Right. Um, and so I'm curious about a guy like Dean Phillips. And you've talked about in the past when these candidates come through, the teams and the approach is very, very different. Did uh, You know, I'm trying to remember who was the guy. Somebody was basically on their own. Oh, uh, the old, the old uh, Colorado senator, right? Yeah,
1: Hickenlooper. Yeah, Hickenlooper, he had like one yeah. other guy who showed up with him basically. Yeah, yeah it was really fascinating. So four years ago when this happened and we said had all these candidates, it really, it really did range from, you know, some candidates roll in and it's them and one other person. Um, some of them, uh, had, you know, giant, you know, organizations (laughs) and that went a variety of different ways. Like we talked about, you know, Elizabeth Warren had a really well-organized, very um, thorough but friendly and kind, like yeah. campaign staff that was effective. And then, you know, Kamala Harris's campaign was sort of a mess, and they were all kind of, they weren't kind, of, they were, they were not nice. <laughs> they were. Uh, it was clear that they were sort of full of themselves, and. And then you had like the, you know, the Beto O'Rourke's who like Beto, every time Beto was on campus, showed up an hour late and was everything was kind of, you know, uh, chaos. And so, um, yeah. you know, it gives you a little bit of a sense. And and uh, so what I expected from Dean Phillips was what I saw with like a John Hickenlooper and whatnot. I expected it to be he and, you know, one other person. But he came in with a sizable staff. They were <laughs> um, very well organized. They had signs up, they had buttons, they had, you know, uh, uh, media people, they had arranged. I think that they, uh, I, my impression is they arranged the media. So it was, there were five or six media outlets there and and like national, like Fox news was there. The Washington yeah. post was there. Um, and, and so it, it was, it was very well organized now. So and in, in the staff members that I dealt with were all, uh, um, th- they were, very kind, but they were, you know, they were efficient. They were, it was clear they, you know, knew what their job was. And so, yeah, I was really impressed with the structure. Now, he's, he's well-to-do, right. And so some of it is that he has the resources resources, to do that. But, but, you know, Hickenlooper is also well-to-do and, (laughs) and you know, it didn't play out that way for him. So I think that, you know, oftentimes it's the candidate is impressive, but like you're saying, the, the people they surround themselves with says a lot about their leadership style and the sort of people that they attracted. I, I was, I was very impressed with, with the Phillips campaign.
0: And I don't think you know. It's interesting. You know, some Democrats have said that uh, nobody should challenge Joe Biden. I don't necessarily think this is a bad thing for Biden or the Biden campaign, right? Getting back in the game after four years and and doing some of the campaigning and getting out there and being pushed by somebody. It's it's sort of like a preseason game. I mean, it's it's clear that Biden, uh, short of some sort of dramatic development, is like is going to be the nominee. So you know, and he's not going to debate him, but he's probably going to show up for a few campaign events and do some of that. Um, and that's probably good for getting the the campaign machine going. And uh, so I think Phillips plays a role there. And I, I also think he's raising an important question. I still think the Democrats are, are better off with Joe Biden, but it's I, I, I'm not I'm not troubled by his candidacy.
1: I, I think that's the thing with Joe Biden is that I, I even whatever concerns I have about his popularity, I don't know who the other who the alternative is that would kind of fill that void. But, but I think what Dean Phillips would argue is that's the point of these primaries, right? So that that, like, how can you know of alternatives when there aren't any alternatives who are putting their name out there? And his argument was like, it's a disservice to, the country, but it's a disservice to the party to not have, you know, multiple candidates who are, you know, when you have these debates, you've, we've seen in previous years, how, uh, you know, candidate, how, you know, when, how Hillary Clinton was sort of pushed on issues because of the popularity Mm -hmm. or the, the surge of, of Bernie, um, in the party. And so I, I think there's, there's, I I'm, I'm torn between on one hand saying the democratic party, their job is to promote their candidate and their candidate is Joe Biden. and, uh, and versus the idea of uh, there is you know maybe there is a disservice here in that like making Joe Biden you know ag- again play some preseason games helps yeah. helps strengthen him for the the general election uh in you know in a year from now so absolutely um, absolutely
0: no I think this will be interesting to see he's not he's not getting a lot of attention but that could change too right I mean they're. Uh, it's interesting to watch candidates suddenly uh, not, not take off, but, you know, get, get a little more of national attention. We saw it with Vivek Ramaswamy, right? He was a nobody. Right. And then suddenly he gave a couple speeches and he became the new darling of the conservative movement. And then that sort of fades. Right. So there's there's these ups and downs with some of these candidates. And, um, yeah, I, I think in general, parties, political parties are good by some of are benefit from some of this conversation. So right. I think that's uh, that's fascinating. All right, so we've got to move on. But quickly, you want to offer a couple thoughts? thoughts. Chris, Chris Christie comes in tomorrow comes at a really interesting time yeah. in his candidacy where there's some pressure on him to step away. So what uh tell us a little bit about what you're thinking or what you think you might see tomorrow.
1: Well, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, you know, the Dean Phillips, like we talked about, there's you know there were whatever thirty people who show up to to hear him speak. I, I suspect Chris Christie will be a bigger event. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I you know and and it'll be interesting to see. He's a he's a, a you know a, I was gonna say a known commodity. He's well known. People know yeah. of him. He has name recognition. Um, uh, but, but yeah, the the it'll be I'll be interested to see how he frames. It. I mean, he has been he's gone from being you know one of the big supporters of Trump to being I think arguably the most vocal yeah. critic of trump at least of the people who is who are in, still running for uh, the, the the Republican nomination. And so I, I'm, I'm sure it will be an attacking style. And yeah. and I think it is good for the Republican Party to have that voice. And so that, yeah. that raises this question that you were talking about, where he's under increased pressure to um, or uh, growing pressure to withdraw and throw his support behind Nikki Haley, who's been the who's kind of surged lately Un, under the, you know, in the idea, the idea being that they, they can avoid what happened eight years ago where a divided field allows Trump to, to, um, cruise through. I'm torn on that because I think that there is truth to that. And that like the, the people who want to oppose Trump really need to unify. But I, I think there's an importance to having a pointed critique, like what Chris Christie is doing that I, that's not coming from Nikki Haley. And so, um, it'll, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, but I'll be fascinated to see how many people show up and what kind of people show up for a, for
0: a Chris Christie rally. Me too, too. Well, the listeners can tune in next week for that because, yeah, I think this is really, really important Um, I because I, Nikki Haley is not going to be overly critical of Trump, as, right. especially as she has surged into this number two position. Still, what, like 45 points behind Trump? Right. So there's right. no challenge there. The, chal- the, the way that that number two candidate ultimately wins is if Trump goes to jail or there's some other reason, right? So that's why all those other candidates are vying for that number two spot. Uh, and She's got the Coke money now. Coke donors are coming in big time. And yeah, I, I, but I still think the the Republican Party as a whole benefits from having somebody like Chris Christie forcing this uncomfortable conversation about Trump into the space. So I think that's that's good. So. All right. Well, should we transition uh, from domestic to international? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so for our next topic, we're shifting to the war in Ukraine, which our listeners have likely noticed is no longer front page news. Uh, Despite the lack of media attention, the war continues, and some estimates suggest that the last month was the deadliest in the war's history. Uh, Last week, Ukraine claimed that in just one day, Russia had over a thousand casualties. Uh, the death toll has reached the hundreds of thousands, yet despite the high casualty rates and talk of offensives and counter and counter-counter-offenses, there has been little movement of troops or borders. In fact, Ukraine's commander-in-chief, General Valery Zalunzias, I don't know, pronunciation is probably very wrong on that, uh, said that he believes the conflict has drifted into a stalemate. Uh, speaking of Ukraine's counter-offensive, the general said, quote, there will most likely be no deep and beautiful breakthrough. He went on to explain, the simple fact is, we see everything the enemy is doing and they see everything we are doing. In order for us to break this deadlock, we would need something new, like the gunpowder, which the Chinese invented and which we are still using to kill each other today, right? So that's that's a really interesting quote. Um, The idea of Ukraine slipping into a stalemate has significant consequences for the future of the war and Western support. It has led some to ask whether Vladimir Putin may be winning this stage of the war, There was a really interesting article in The Economist speculating that for the first time in the war, uh, developments are moving in Putin's direction. Putin is in it for the long haul, and he's convinced that the United States and NATO are not. And if he can wait them out, he can attain victory in Ukraine. Phil, there's a lot to break down here. What do you make of this potential stalemate in Ukraine?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is really fascinating because I think there there is there's like so many angles and and elements to this. So I I think, first of all, I I think what we're seeing is what I I think a lot of people kind of foresaw coming. um, As you know, you had this really dynamic period early in the war where Russia made a lot of progress, and then this sort of second phase where Ukraine pushed back a lot, and then. Over time, we've seen it sort of, you know, the, those those movements uh, become more and more minimized. And and people talked about early on that this is this is the you know where we might end up uh, in, in this sort of you know stalemate sort of period where it's not going to be easy to push the remaining troops out of Russia. But it's also especially with Western support, going to be incredibly difficult for Russia to make any real gains yeah. um, in, in Ukraine. And so I, I don't know that it's all that surprising, but it does bring us. To the point that we also talked about early on, which is, um, I, I do think that this um, uh, this sort of situation does to some extent favor Vladimir Putin, right? Because, yeah. uh, you know, the, like you've talked about, we have talked about this less as the, as the, the crisis in, in Gaza has happened as, as sort of tensions with China have risen and whatnot, uh, American attention spans are, you know, notoriously brief, particularly when we're talking about foreign politics, where we don't necessarily feel it at home. And it feels like, you know, we're seeing that commitment to Ukrainian freedom and, you know. Know, opposition to, uh, you know, uh, Russian uh, conquest, like it's waning, right? Like w- yeah. we have become bored with it, um, right. and I think there's a real danger in that. But I feel like that's that that is the American approach. But I think it's also what you see happening in lots of the the threat, the fear, the crisis has sort of minimized, and so convincing people that this is essential um, is harder to do. And, and I think. It, it, it's like a, I don't know, it's it's uh, a product of of Ukraine, of our own success in some yeah. ways. Like the, the support of Ukraine has been so effective against Russia that it makes Russia seem less threatening than yeah. they were when this whole war started. And so the success of, of the Ukrainian defense kind of undermines support for the Ukrainian defense, ironically. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it is a really interesting, I think the other part of this I want to talk about the technology part here in a minute as yeah. well. But the other part of it is it also shows the extent to which when we're talking about wars, like how so so much of it is in the moment and framing. Like the idea that like if we could go back to when this all happens and, and show Vladimir Putin and Western leaders the map of where things currently stand versus how much success Russia originally had and say – that this what we see on this map is vladimir putin winning we would say that's nonsense right like and so it's it is really interesting that it's um he's been able to sort of frame this as a russian victory i mean he's still holding ukrainian territory but it's remarkably small compared to you know what he originally did but uh um yeah it i I think the to the extent that he can in fact wait out sort of western sentiment i i think that that is true now I I, I don't know. I mean, that may be him winning. It's certainly not winning as he envisioned it when this all started.
0: No, that's that's absolutely right, and uh, like you mentioned, the technology. Maybe we should go there because I think that's the the cause of the stalemate is really fascinating, and it has both this old and new element to it, right? So you, one way you could look at this war is say it feels very much like World War One. I. I mean, there are trenches, there are minefields, right? This is a, is a very old, you know, these these um, the troop movements. We're talking like feet, you know, especially when you when you're going through minefields, and at the same time, it's also cutting edge technology, and so this the in chief for Ukraine was talking about, the advancement in technology allows each side to basically see where they're going. So, you know, some of these counter offenses, as they are moving, as, as the Ukrainians are trying to barge through a particular area, Russia knows where they're going and they can strategically put landmines and then they can attack those areas. And so it makes it difficult for any side to advance at this point. And So it is it is an old school fight using up to date modern technology. And I think that uh, it makes it very, very difficult for any dramatic movements here. And I think, yeah, essentially, that's that's how you get to the stalemate, which raises really difficult political questions. Um, So you can either continue in this for a long period of time and still and continue to throw lives into the meat grinder, or you can begin to think about negotiation. And that's a hard conversation as well. Right. Do does each are each is either party interested in negotiation. I mean, Zelensky from the get-go has said, we want to win back all Ukrainian territory and the Crimean Peninsula. Uh, so that doesn't seem like they'd be open to negotiation. And the same side, Putin has said, there's no negotiating, right? I mean, so they they think they can wait this out and win. So you still have interested parties who are have zero interest in sitting out at the uh, at the negotiating table. So you're likely to see more of this violent, uh, stalemate play out for long periods of time because the technology won't allow anything different.
1: Yeah, I, it is classic. I, I think of, you know, like prospect theory or whatever, the idea that like human beings tend to like interpret, they like, you uh I don't know, um, uh, way, prioritize, feel like losses more than yeah. wins. Like hey, you can end up in a situation like this where both sides feel like they're losing because Ukraine has lost territory to Russia, but Russia has lost some of the territory that it had gained, and so neither one, neither are willing to say, "Yeah, we're fine settling <laughs> here." They both feel like they they're owed more. Um, yeah, I mean the 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 technology part of it is really fascinating, and and I think what's really interesting is that you know when that if you read that sort of interview or that conversation with that Ukrainian general, he, he's talking about how there has to be new technology to help achieve this breakthrough, and. It's easy to think of that as like, well, that's something that's coming in the future. But I I think in some ways he's he's even alluding to this is technology that exists. The United States and Western powers have some a a lot of advanced technology that they're just not sharing with Ukraine for a variety of reasons. Uh, You know, national security reasons, fear that like early on it was if we gave too much stuff or too. Uh, equipment that was too advanced or too capable to the the Ukrainian military then it would be seen as an attack on Russia. Yeah. And so I that I mean that raises a question to me of like should the US you know as we're it's being discussed whether we're going to you know support more aid to Ukraine, you know it's being debated in Congress, you know as, as we speak, but should the US sort of open up not just the pocketbooks but should they give some of this technology that you know, it can help win this war for Ukraine, but it's also giving away to some extent, you know, some of our state secrets,
0: so to speak, yes. right? It's
1: stuff that we keep in our back pocket for our own defense.
0: And, and we have a long history, the United States has a long history of giving that technology out and then losing it, right? Right, having we, it used no against longer,
1: us in the long run, right.
0: Yes. Which has happened many times. I mean, you could think about ISIS driving around with a lot of heavy US military, yep. go all the way back to uh, Afghanistan in the, in the yep. '90s, right, surface-to-air missiles, all the you know, ultimately coming back to being used against the United States. So no, I, I get the hesitation there on the United States. And then the other question with that technology, timing matters so much. I wonder, is there any new technology that can overcome some of the barriers? When you read about the mining that Russia has yeah. done, I mean, we're t- they're talking about. Decades and decades before those mines could be removed. Um, is it even possible to to move troops through these spaces in a meaningful way? I mean, Russia has done a pretty strategic job of making this conflict difficult. Uh, both sides, right? So and not, nobody can win, but nobody can either lose. And that's the definition of a stalemate. So
1: let me, is this, is, is a stalemate actually the way it's being framed now a victory for Russia? Like is Vladimir Putin winning? Because I I can see that, yes, in the, in the sort of short to medium term as the West and the U S sort of loses their, I don't know, their, their passion for supporting Ukrainian uh, efforts. Um, that could be interpreted as a win for Russia. But we also know from political science that this situation, which is, you know, a foreign occupier in Ukrainian territory is like in many ways, the longer that goes, it's not an advantage for Russia. It becomes an advantage for Ukraine. So in the short term, Vladimir Putin may win in that he, you know, as if, if monetary and military support for Ukraine dwindles, he might be able to make a little more progress. But it does feel like the longer this drags on, like he also is trying to prop up his own government at home. And the more Russian bodies he throws at this, the more impacts it has on the Russian economy. And it's not like the Ukraine. I mean, the Ukrainian people have more to fight for without a doubt here than the Russian military. Right. And so that seems like I, I, I don't know. I mean, I understand where in the moment that might feel like a stalemate leans Russia. But I I feel like that uh, sort of downplays what we know about the the likely success in the long run of this sort of uh, uh, occupation effort.
0: I think that's absolutely right. Putin lost this war, the day that he invaded, or at least a couple of weeks afterwards, when Ukraine was able to keep them from taking the capital and push them back, and ever since it's about redefining victory. Now, I think Putin could certainly try to redefine this as a victory to say we've created a buffer zone, we've re- re- protected the Russians in Ukraine. You know, we have a land bridge to Crimea. You can do things to to portray it as a victory. But you're right, this is going to continue to take an enormous, a, a huge amount of resources, a blood and treasure all of that and even if there's some sort of ceasefire reached it's still going to be a long term pain in the butt for russia uh, because ukrainians are going to continue to try to get this territory back so no i think long term this is a loss for russia but I, I imagine there'll be an attempt to redefine it as a grand great victory uh you know for the russian people so this is again it was one of the worst decisions of the 21st century in terms of foreign policy
1: how how does this end? Like I, I mean, I when I start just as we're talking, I, I know we've talked about this before. Looking for off roads, you're talking about how yeah. nobody really wants to to settle this. Um, you know, nobody wants to give up anything in this moment. But I mean, if that continues indefinitely, you end up with a like a you know a Korean de- yes. demilitarized zone situation. Is is that where we're headed, or is it? I don't know. Like, is there something that will alter as as support Western support fades? Is that going to make Ukraine more willing to consider uh, concessions is like it's hard for me to imagine in a situation like this, how we get out of the sort of rut deadlock that we're in.
0: I think the only thing that changes this is domestic politics, right? So does Ukraine move in a different direction? Does Zelensky eventually leave office or get voted out? And sometimes new leadership can be more open to a different solution. And then maybe Ukraine is willing to negotiate some of their territory away in a way that Zelensky wasn't. On the flip side... If Vladimir Putin is tossed from power at some point in the future, I think that changes the equation where you could potentially have some sort of long term solution. But short of that, I think you're looking at this for a long period of time and it it may be not a ceasefire, maybe an armistice. I think the Korean example is really useful. Um, It's just going to grind away. And at some point, the the status quo will change. But that may be a long way down the road.
1: Yeah, I mean, we are in Korea, you know, Korea has been this way for decades and decades and decades. So. Um, yeah, it's it, especially when you start start talking about the use of, like you were talking about mines and all of that. Like, there's just no, you know, it, it, yeah. Again, it's movement of, of of feet as opposed to to miles that is happening at this point.
0: Well, well speaking of uh, wars in Asia, is this a nice transition to Henry Kissinger?
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. So last week, Henry Kissinger passed away at the age of 100. Uh, Kissinger served as Secretary of State, National Security Advisor in the administrations of Nixon and Ford, where he helped oversee one of the most significant restructurings of U.S. foreign policy, I think, arguably ever. Um, mm-hmm. And and he remained an influential advisor to presidents until his death. Like he, you know, was meeting with he he met with with Joe Biden even. Um, Kissinger was in in many ways, to me at least, the personification of realism as a world view. You know, his approach to politics, realpolitik, um, argued that foreign policy should be approached in a purely pragmatic way, devoid of what we often do, which is you know, throwing moral and ethical wrappings around things. Um, so, so it was this approach that led Kissinger to pioneer the policy of detente with the Soviet Union, which viewed the Soviets less as an evil empire, less as like this moral you know monolith, but instead as a rational country seeking power and security. The same things that you, US was looking for. Um, it was this worldview that also opened the door to, uh, as a result, as part of Detente, numerous disarmament treaties with the Soviet Union. Um, it was also Kissinger's realism that led to the normalization of relations with communist China yeah, right. in an attempt to contain Soviet power and influence. Again, we're not going to make moral statements. It's not about, you know, opposing communism. It's about what's good for the US. How do we best achieve our goals? How do we increase our security? Um, Perhaps more than any of his policies, his his approach to normalizing relations with China has undoubtedly reshaped the world we live in today. And his negotiation of the Paris Peace Accords to end the Vietnam War, which was also kind of very realist in approach, earned him the 1973 Nobel Peace Prize, maybe one of the more ironic peace prizes (laughs) that's ever been given. Um, But Kissinger's, you know, along those lines, Kissinger's amoral approach to politics also led to policies like the bombing of Cambodia, um, support for Pinochet's coup in Chile, backing of the dirty war in Argentina, each of which, and and the list could go on, but each of which left violence and crimes against humanity in, in its wake. His legacy is incredibly complex. Some see him as a master geopolitician, uh, many others see him as a war criminal, um, including many people around the world who tried to bring yeah. him up on, on on war crime charges. Uh, so his death provides a moment for us to consider his legacy. And and by extension, I think maybe for us uh, a way for us to consider the worldview that he espoused. So so, Bill, where do you want to start with someone as complicated as Henry Kissinger?
0: Well, I would just say that was a really good intro, and you summarized so much of of the complexity of Henry Kissinger. And and I, I think, as I've been spending a lot of time this last week thinking about his legacy and how we understand him, and what's interesting to me is that so many uh, powerful people in the United States, presidents, former presidents, uh, secretaries of state, they all enjoyed and wanted to spend time with Henry Kissinger and said lots mm-hmm. of nice things about him. At the same time, that long list of really ugly things is very very hard to grapple with. You know, the carpet bombing of Cambodia. Well, the United States secretly bombed Cambodia and dropped more bombs than were dropped in Europe in World War II. I mean, we're talking about thousands and thousands of deaths. Um that was, you know, this was not an announced war, it was a secret war. I mean, I think that is such an awful awful thing. And so how do you how do you make sense of somebody like that? And and in general, we want to turn our our sort of people into either good or bad. Uh, And I think Kissinger is a great example of where that doesn't work. Um, You know, certainly if we think about his his approach to detente with the Soviet Union. That was really important. And I think it set the stage for Reagan being able to engage with, with Gorbachev. Uh, we think about the opening of China. We can't understand our current modern world without appreciating the way in which Kissinger transforms that world by reaching out, engaging with China. Again, truly revolutionary. So those are the Middle East, right? You know, the, Kissinger's activities allowed the United States to suddenly become the central player in the Middle East and push Russia out in the process. These are dramatic, significant Developments, a lot of them really in the United States' interest. So those are, those are, those are really big, you know, good things for U.S. foreign policy. But the list of, a you know, use the word amoral, right? I think that's important. He was sort of indifferent to morality and said, "Hey, you're in this position, you can't worry about it, right? They're already difficult positions, so I'm not going to lose sleep over that." That's hard for me to grapple with, right? You know, and I, so I tend to think he is a consequential. He's a significant figure, but he is a deeply, deeply flawed figure. And when we write the story of Henry Kissinger, we have to talk about those negative things because a lot of people died because of his decisions. Uh, um, so yeah, I, 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 I am less torn. I think he is consequential, but also th- that's sort of the negative side of his record is is maybe what we lead with. That that would be my my interpretation. How about, How about you? How do you how do you how do you reckon with Kissinger?
1: Yeah, no, I think very much like you. I think that this is where it's a you know, there's a really important distinction between saying that someone is incredibly important Mm -hmm. and saying someone is good. Right. And this is where I think Henry Kissinger was massively important and massively significant and had a huge impact, not just on American foreign policy. But on the state of global politics, um, like you know, again, the stuff we've talked about, re, like opening the door to to a lot of the things that helped to bring about the end of the Soviet Union, opening the door to the world we live in now, in which China is a major player. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I think this is the, the, that is different from saying that he is he is a good influence yeah, or was right, was right. you know important in positive ways. Um, I you know I, the, I think to me. When I look at the legacy of Henry Kissinger, again, there are all these, like you said, I think it's really important to note that lots of people from both sides of the aisle thought very highly of him. I think he was very smart, right? Um, But I also come back to the the positives when we list the sort of positive and influential things he did. And we list the sort of negative, awful things that he did. And I think uh, many of those positive, influential things, whether it's, you know, detente or, or opening trade with China or opening relations with China, at least, Um, it's hard to sort of look at the counterfactual, like it's hard to say that without Henry Kissinger, China wouldn't be where it is, or that without Henry Kissinger, the Cold War wouldn't have come to an end. I, I think he had an impact there. I think you can't look at Cambodia and, and Argentina and Chile. It's so easy to look at those and say, without someone like Henry Kissinger, this wouldn't have had, like, yeah, that. this is, right. you know, that the, the negatives point. were so easy. Like the line from his policies to these awful outcomes was, is pretty clear in, in those really kind of awful, um, uh, places. And so that, that, that's where I, uh, you know, it, it, it's easier for me to say, like, you can be important and also, um, uh, we can hold you accountable for, for the things that you've done. And this is ultimately, I think the f- part I find fascinating about him is that this is the tension I have with realism in general, right? I, in, I think realism explains a lot about how the world works. I think that the world is full of a lot of Henry Kissingers who are going to do what needs to be done to protect their own security and advance their own interests. And then many world leaders are not going to get bogged down in the morality of it. They're going to pursue their power. But just because that's how people do behave doesn't mean that's how they should behave. Should behave. And I don't right. think that that's, that's right. how they always behave either. And, and central to it is this idea of... You know, we use the word amoral in this conversation, people like Henry Kissinger and realists and whatever make this argument that you shouldn't get bogged down in right and wrong. But at the heart of that, there is there is a moral argument even in that, because like what if if it's not for morality and ethics and right and wrong, then why is it important to advance right. American exactly. power and interest yeah. that, that you're the, the reason why you want America to succeed is because you believe that their worldview or their world, their values or whatever, are a better way of structuring things than, you know, China or authoritarian, you know, communist Russia. And so. It all still comes back around to morality, and so if if you're willing to abandon your morals in pursuit of of victory because you think your victory is better, then you've kind of undermined your argument to begin with. I think I, I don't know if that makes any sense. It's like no, a complicated kind of ethical uh, uh, dance that I'm doing.
0: No, I think it does because there's there's always some level of morality. You just don't want to uh, always adjust, You know, the realists don't always want to acknowledge it, and for for. Henry Kissinger, he saw the world as this grand chessboard and international politics was moving the pieces around in a particular way. And and a, a part of that chessboard, it was this grand battle between the United States and the Soviet Union and everything that happened everywhere related to that battle between the United States and the Soviet Union. And I think what we've learned over the years is no, it didn't. So, you know, the fighting in Vietnam, some of that really was about a local issue, and we turned it into a proxy war of the United States versus the Soviet Union, but it wasn't always the case, or at least some of the motivation wasn't along those lines. Um, So Kissinger is always thinking in that that sort of grand way, and it made him indifferent to morality in ways that he shouldn't, right? That, you know, he should have cared more about the suffering in Cambodia. He should have cared that he and nixon when they undermined Allende and and created the conditions that brought pinochet to power like that they bear some responsibility for bringing an end to democracy in chile right those are those are those are tangible things where you brought about a non good because of your actions and one of the things that i find sort of fascinating about being in the classroom today is when i talk to my students about figures like henry kissinger there's no moral ambiguity like some of us who lived through Kissinger mm-hmm. and 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 you know and I think this I found the same reaction to George W Bush like they don't know George W Bush but when yeah. they read about what he he did they they are very clear cut in saying that's immoral uh, yeah. and and their assessment of Henry Kissinger many of my students are saying like what he did was immoral and I'm not really concerned about the fact that he opened China because you know the bombing of Cambodia was was too significant and you can't come back from that right. so I wonder how history will remember some of these figures as we get more time and there's less people who knew them and sort of saw them as human beings and then they just transition into becoming sort of historical figures.
1: It is a really interesting, I mean, there's this, that, there's that, that that gap that's hard to bridge, right? Because the Henry Kissinger as a person is like a fascinating and in some ways yeah like, you know, if, if you made a movie out of Henry Kissinger's life and, and it wasn't called Henry Kissinger, you didn't know the whole story. There's a really, I mean, you know, he's a German Jewish immigrant who fled Nazi power, right? Like that, that undoubtedly he claims that didn't have an impact on his worldview. It, it's hard for me to understand how someone who comes out of that background has such sort of a cold approach to world yeah, politics, but there's like right. a complex psychology there that I think is fascinating as so many people liked him and all of that. But If you separate that personal from the legacy, right, it's, it's easy on the flip side, right? It's not Henry Kissinger. It's not anybody you have a respect for. We just list this person was responsible for bombing Cambodia, opening the door for the, you know, the genocide that followed there, you know, opening the door for supporting the, the overthrow of a democratically elected government in, in Argentina. Um, you know, that's, there's a, in, in Chile, there's a long list of, of stuff that he did. And you would say, well, this guy, this person's terrible, Right. Right. so like, yes. how do you like to what extent do you say they did terrible things, but they're, you know, a a, a complicated and likable person? It feels like those two, they shouldn't weigh
0: equally. Um, and and there's, a, I think, a really
1: strong argument that your students are 100 percent right on that.
0: So much of it matters on what story do you tell and where do you start that story? Uh, you know, and it, it's sort of thinking about Kissinger in that way. Right. And, and going back to his his youth where he fled. Uh Nazi persecution, right? Is you know, his, his family left right before things got really, really bad. Um, and I think that was likely, I mean, we're playing a little drugstore psychology here, but it was likely a very formative impact for him, where this idea of there's only one level of morality that matters, right? Keeping the dangerous enemies out. And so it means you can justify whatever you want so that yeah. the Nazis never come back to power. And so if you're fighting the Soviet Union, it means you do anything to prevent the expansion of, of communism. And so so you're right to your earlier point, there is. Is a morality driving this amorality, and and so I think that Kissinger is exposed in some way there.
1: I think many of the people who who hold Kissinger up as an example uh, of who see this as you know see him as as a heroic figure, their support of him fails the Henry Kissinger test in many yes. ways. In which yeah. like they're holding him up because they think he did these wonderful things for America. And the, the winning of the cold war is for them a moral thing, right? Like it's about like we, America needed to win the cold war for these moral reasons. And so, you know, Henry Kissinger would say, but if you strip away the morality, then like, it's all about power and do, do we need to win in the same way? And I think that, you know, you, you have people who are for moral reasons, holding up a person who says that morals didn't, didn't matter in, in foreign policy.
0: In my one of my my foreign policy class, we read Reinhold Niebuhr, who is this this uh, theologian philosopher writing about U.S. foreign policy, and that's one of the points he drives home over and over again that you're fighting, you know, this enemy, but you oftentimes become the very thing that you're fighting. Now he says you still got to try, but he said you should realize that you're likely to to become the very thing that you're trying to fight. And I think that's that's what happened to Kissinger. It's a, again a, a fascinating figure. I, I know we got to move on, but it's, it's just it's so I I find the time thinking about him is valuable.
1: You know, if I had, like, the number of times that people compare me to Reinhold Niebuhr, it is just, it's exhausting, (laughs) Bill. (laughs) It's
0: it's a good comparison. I like it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, should we wrap up with a I was gonna say a lighter topic, but it's a lighter topic about heavy stuff. Yes. <laughs> should, we, should we change gears. All right, <laughs> yes. so we're gonna wrap up today with with uh, uh, a, a return to our favorite podcasting game. What's more stupid? So uh, this week we're gonna take a focus. We're gonna focus on populism. Um, th- there have been a lot of articles this week on just how dangerous a second Trump term would be for democracy. Like in every major news source, it seems like has has written about this, but. Our listeners are, should be already well aware of that. But despite all of this, Trump continues to poll incredibly well, and populists around the world have had a string of successes. Um, in Argentina, Javier Millet um, was recently elected president, and Geert, Geert Wilders, one of the poster boys of populism, just led his own party to a surprise victory in a Netherlands snap election on November 22nd. So we thought we'd take a look at some quotes from these three populists and try to decide who should take Take home the crown of what's more stupid. So-
0: (laughs) You ready for this, Bill? I'm ready. I'm excited. Right, yep. so,
1: so let's start at home with our own Donald Trump. Trump, who remarkably leads in the polls for now, was at a ra- rally in Cedar Rapids recently. And despite facing numerous criminal charges related to his election denialism, he continues to double or triple or quadruple or however many times at this point down on his claims. He now seems to be claiming that he actually won all 50 states in 2020, <laughs> saying, and this is the quote, I think if you had a real election and Jesus came down and God came down and said, I'm going to be the scorekeeper here, I think we'd win in California, I think we'd win in Illinois, and I think we'd win in New York. Bill, there's a variety of stupid in that quote, (laughs) but what's your verdict? I want you to break it down for us. Break down the stupidity of Trump's claim that if Jesus were referee, he would win all 50 states.
0: Well, the best part about this segment is it really allows us to dive into the meaning of stupid, right? I mean, in the past we've talked about that there's there's sort of funny stupid, and but this strikes me as dumb stupid, right? So I mean, the the idea, well, they're on two levels, right? One that if Jesus came back to Earth, what he would really want to do was regulate the U.S. election, right? I mean, just who in their right mind comes up with that as a scenario? You know, who we really need as election counters is Jesus. Like that's a weird Weird one, like just that's stupid, right? But then the idea that Jesus would somehow, if he was counting the ballots, that Trump would win New York and Illinois and California—that's stupid, stupid. Like that, that's just dumb, right? I mean, I'm sorry, I don't know how. I mean, however you're counting the ballots, and I'm guessing Jesus probably would be a pretty good ballot counter, right? <laughs> Strikes me as the kind of guy that would be fair, you know. Um, there's no way Trump is winning Illinois or California or New York, Hey, right? That's stupid, right? But again, yeah. it's a particular type of stupid. It's stupid, stupid, and. Even even thinking about, like, the fact that in his brain, the idea of Jesus becoming a, a polling, you know, a voter or whatever, a uh, vote counter, is, is very yeah. stupid. That, my, that's what's my gut reaction. What are you What are you thinking? I-
1: well, I've been thinking we need Jesus to be an election watcher for uh, for a <laughs> long time. So
0: that's right. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, this is again. There's like a stupidity on a wide variety here, right? So it, it is both the idea. I mean, at the heart of it, it this shows the fact that uh, like t- support for Trump or Trump's claims has become totally detached from reality, yeah. right? Like he's yeah. not. This is different from claiming, you know, the the couple handful of states where the elections were really close, there was something fishy going on. He's now claiming that like right. he won outright in all. 50 states and, and like people are just okay with it right he's leading the Republican Party he's leading in national polls against Joe Biden like with this sort of nonsense like he like he has like little by little he sort of stripped back the truth right The the and, and he's at a point now where like he, there's no even attempt to appear truthful this is like faith based politics at its best right like you say it and so therefore it must be it must be right but yes the <laughs> tying the idea of like Jesus or God coming down and and again it's a it's a really weird image of God, right? Like if God is actually all powerful and all of that, then like he could, you know, God, he, she, whatever could have intervened in the, in the 2020 election if they (laughs) wanted to anyway. Right. So it is just, it is a, it is a level of insanity that again, if we could get in a time machine and go back 10 years ago and say, this is what the leading presidential candidate is going to be saying. You'd be like, this person's clinically like they're, they're not fit for office. Like, of course not. They're not going to, (laughs) they're not gonna, they're not gonna win. But here we are. So maybe exactly. the stupid part is that he's leading, right? That he's saying this <laughs> right. stuff it's and a, he's still
0: leading. There's a third level to this. No, that's right. I wonder. I know we're gonna move to the second example. I wonder if you were in the audience, I would love to see the audience reacting to that. Like, because one reaction is like, yeah, you know, Jesus should count the votes. Another is like, did, did he just say Jesus should count the votes? And I, I, would be curious, even among Trump supporters, was there like, eh, he's probably gone a little too far there. Like, you know, I, you know, infuse. I, I totally get Christianity nationalism, but infusing Jesus into the the vote counting process. I, I'm curious how, how that all would be received yeah. by that particular audience. Yeah. So. I kind
1: of think that if you're going to Trump rallies at this point, you're like fully on board anyway. Yeah. Like nothing he says is really going to throw you off. Right.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. I want to see that picture of, you know, Jesus counting ballots. So, yeah. Well,
1: so on the on the topic of of religion and its role in politics, let's go to contestant number two, who comes to us from the Netherlands. So uh, you listeners may or may not have heard of Geert Wilders. Is that how you pronounce it? I don't know if you I really think so. know how to yeah, do a, yeah. a Dutch accent. Geert Wilders. Uh, but he's been a figure in Dutch politics for decades. Um, I, I think I read today that he's like the longest serving member of the Dutch parliament. So um, he is in many ways the quintessence. Populist. Uh, following recent elections, his party now has the most seats in the Dutch parliament and may well take power. This is really a fascinating thing because it's like there, it's what we've talked about in the past with, uh, um, uh, you know, arguing that politics that, uh, po- that parties have a role in preventing the rise of populists. And in, in Netherlands now, a lot of the mainstream parties are debating whether they make a coalition with, with, with Wilders party or not. But anyway, Wilders has primarily made a name for himself with his anti-Islamic views, but there's like an incredible irony in all of his anti-Islamic arguments. For instance, he said things like, quote, I believe the Islamic ideology is a retarded, dangerous one. And I make, but I make it. Distinction. I don't hate people. I don't hate Muslims. So he's argued that the ideology is dangerous, wow. but he's got nothing against Muslims. He goes on to say, in fact, we should wake up and tell ourselves you're not a xenophobe. You're not a racist. You're not a crazy guy if you say my culture is better than yours. <laughs> I know that that's not funny. It's like terrible, awful stuff. But like, I, it's yeah. incredible to me that that someone has like the, either the lack of self-awareness that they or the the gall to be able to say,
0: I, I'm not a racist. My culture is just better than yours. I'm just it's, superior it's, to you. It's like reading the definition of racism and then saying, you're not that. <laughs> you yeah. <know? laughs> yeah.
1: All of this, he claims, is uh, in the name of act- he's actually this is all in the name of tolerance. This is the last quote I'll read. Yeah. His. Quote, I believe we have been too tolerant of the intolerant. We should learn to become intolerant of the intolerant. So his whole idea is that Islam is intolerant. And so we should be more tolerant and therefore be intolerant of Islam. <laughs> I don't even God. know how to fully make sense of that, Bill. Uh, so what do you
0: think? Can, could Geert take home the stupid title today? Geert strikes me as stupid, but it's a different type of stupid. Right. I mean, this is sort of evil, stupid. Right. So this, um, you know, I mean, this is a demonization. So, you know, Trump is engaged in a fair amount of demonization. But his previous. Yeah. His previous quote was more like stupid, stupid. Right. It was just like dumb, stupid. But this one drifts into like evil stupid right and especially like he's he's evil and demonizing the other and engaging in in very very dangerous language but doing so again in a stupid way of you know we should no longer be intolerant of the intolerant right and but again he's the intolerant right so there's this, this like circle like circle logic that doesn't make sense and it's awfully scary and if our listeners haven't seen him if you Google him he looks like Donald Trump he wears his hair the same way red red ties. this is a guy that I just assumed had gone away uh, and now he's back and and the leading candidate you're right, I don't think he's going to become prime minister but it's it's a it's scary that the Netherlands is sort of embracing some of this stupid intolerance.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. Well, and I mean that's the, the irony of him does goes like well beyond. Like he's super opposed to immigration, but I think he's married to a Hungarian woman. Like it's like right, all sorts right. of bizarre stuff that that comes into it. But yeah, so there's like again back to your, what you were saying, different types of stupid and. I was going to say that this is just like stupid in that it's like illogical. Like it's yeah. bad logic. To, like, it's right. not that hard. It's true. If you yeah. tried to diagram the logic of this sentence, it was, it like goes in circles in a way that, yeah. that is, it can't be proven. But then I thought like, if, if, If that's the claim that this is stupid, then uh, certainly you know Donald Trump's claim that if Jesus came down (laughs) and kept score, (laughs) he would win all fifty states. But it's like a difference between like this is faulty logic that Gert Wilders is doing versus like a a total detachment from logic that uh, that uh, Donald Trump is doing. But I do think the evilness of the quotes of of Wilders might give him a a leg up. All right, so let's go to our last
0: one. Okay, yeah, yeah. So our
1: last one, our third contestant, hails from Argentina. We talked a little bit about Javier Millet uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, but Javier Millet was recently elected president of Argentina and he shows that populists come in all forms because he is a libertarian and he has done a variety of things like he has cloned his dead dog and claims to still speak to and get advice from said deceased pet. Um, stupid. The, poten- <laughs> the potential stupid quotes from Millet are numerous, but let's focus in on his libertarian love of free markets. Uh, his support of markets extends pretty far. He argues, for instance, that people should be able to legally sell their organs. Quote, the sale of human organs is merchandise. My first property is my body why am I not going to be able to dispose of my body? <laughs> it's a valid question, right, Bill? Yeah. Um, the same approach also seems to, this is where it gets really stupid, also seems to apply for him to children, as Millet has proposed creating a, quote, free market of adoptions, which is another way of saying that it should be legal to sell your children. So Bill, wow. <laughs> what, how did, what kind of stupid is this and, and how does it rank against the others?
0: Yeah, again, a different type of student, but stupid, but this will be the fun comparison, right? Um, This is like, I I think, stupid, stupid, right? Like, not very intelligent, stupid. So this guy is supposed to be an economist and a libertarian, and he is stretching ideas to the point of stupidity, right? selling children is a bad idea. And if you think it's a good idea, you may be stupid, right? And the same thing with the organ trade, right? There's all sorts of reasons why the organ trade is really, really bad. Um, But he is not like mentally capable of understanding that he's not well read. Um, He is, he is a populist, right? Simple solutions to complex problems. This is what we see in populism, right? You're not, you're not particularly smart. You don't understand nuance. In fact, you hate nuance, right? So nuance on the organ trade trade is boring phil so i think this is like dumb dumb stupid um and uh and and pretty egregious at that not evil you know not sort of uh weirdo stupid like trump this is like you probably need to go back to some school
1: yeah <laughs> I, I don't know if you can see this, but what I wrote. Well, you probably can't read my handwriting, oh, but yeah, I thought yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. I wrote while you were talking before you even said it, simple solutions to complex That's problems. Right. <laughs> this is, that is classic populism, right? Like this, this problem is easy to solve. Like I, this, the re like why won't our politicians do it? Look how simple it is. And so this is, yes, this is stupid in a like, like you said, like an uninformed approach to politics, stupid, right? Like I, yeah. I have simple solutions and I haven't thought through, uh, any of the complexity involved or what the implications are or why this mm-hmm. might go wrong or any of that. And so, uh, yeah, this is, this is, this is stupid. Like the, I don't know, like Argentina has elected, the, you know, the, I don't know, the, the kid in your eighth grade class who seems yeah. to, who has claimed to figure things out, right? Who, who thinks he understands politics <laughs> right, uh, right. to be their president. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is like stupid in a, in again, in an uninformed kind of, uh, you know, simplistic approach to politics, uh, kind of way. So, so we, yeah, go ahead. We have, yeah, we have three very different types of stupid. Yeah. Here. So I, like, how are you going to make sense of this? How are you going to like measure these against one another?
0: So my initial metric for a sort of weighing stupidity is is a gut reaction. Like, so what incident is likely to cause me to go, that's stupid, right? Mm-hmm. And if I use that metric, the middle one, uh, the wielder's one, I don't think I would I would say that's stupid. I would be like, oh, that's that's mean, that's racist, yes. right? So yeah. I, I'm going to push him aside and say my gut reaction of saying like, oh, that's dumb. That's stupid uh, to Milay and Trump. So I'll start with those two. I would say that's my gut reaction. Those are the leading contenders for being more stupid. What about, what about you?
1: I, I think you're right. I think that like, uh, you know, of, of the, of the quotes that we read, yes, yes. The, 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 not talking about the person as a whole, just the quotes that we read. I think that, that Vilders is the most like, you know, horrifying and dangerous, right? Like his approach yeah. to like, I, I am going to target Muslims be in the name of tolerance. And, and I, you know, they should not play a role in our society. Dangerous, scary, bad stupid, but in a, in a, in that kind of way. And not like you said, when I think of like, that's stupid. Um, so the other two stand out as like, that's, that's stupid. Um, and so I'm, I'm with you. Let's eliminate filter. So it's, it's yes. down to, uh, if Jesus counted ballots, Trump would win everything versus <laughs> we should sell our children. Uh, wh- yes. which of those is more stupid, which gives you that gut reaction.
0: So, okay. So here's, here's my next metric. So if we start with, you know, the reaction, like we're going to say, wait, wait, that's, that's stupid. My next one would be, what what is going to cause me to go wait what right so that that's the next one like wait well, what mm. happened um and both of these are strong contenders right selling organs is is pretty you know compelling but then trump talking about jesus counting ballots right that, when i heard that i think my my first reaction was like Wait, wait. What? Did I read that? So my initial thought is I'm leaning towards Trump because that's like bonkers outside of the box stupid, whereas Millay's mm-hmm. is stupid but in a more conventional way. People have been talking about selling organs on the black market for a long time. Nobody's been talking about Jesus coming down and counting ballots. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I, this, I, this is good because my initial thought was like when you said the wait what test, I, I almost <laughs> lean more towards uh, to, towards Millet because it's yeah. like, I don't know, like politicians say crazy stuff. But wait, wait a minute. He, he's actually <laughs> suggesting we sell children like that sure. That to me is like maybe more of a. Wait, what? Because it's not, it doesn't feel like Mm, rhetoric so much as this is actually, he thinks this is a good idea. Whereas I think, I think Donald Trump, the stuff he's saying is so is stupid, but it's stupid in like a, in, I don't know, like, you know, an old man rambling kind of way. Whereas filters is like, this guy's like suggesting that this would actually be good policy. And it's not, it's not like, and so I, I may go more that way, but, but again, I don't know. The fact that I come back around to the fact that Donald Trump is, is this like sort of detached and this is just what this is not the only thing he said, right? Like we could have yeah, picked any right. many number of quotes from him in recent, recent days. And the fact that he's still leading, I I don't know The the, there is, like you said, some intellectual consistency to saying I'm a libertarian and markets should determine what we do with our bodies. There's nothing consistent to Donald Trump saying, I think I should <laughs> right. win and therefore right. Jesus supports me. So so maybe you're right. Maybe that one is, in fact, the stupidest because there is actually no threat
0: of logic to it whatsoever. This is this is interesting. You make a compelling case, too. It's close. right? I, I would lean a little more towards Trump just because of the uniqueness of the stupidity claim but but you're right the idea of selling children is is deeply deeply dangerous and stupid Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a close one.
1: The equivalent, like if we're, if we're going to draw some sort of analogy, it would be more like if Donald Trump had said, not that if Jesus came down and counted things, I'd win. It would have been if Jesus, if, if Donald Trump had said at his rally last week, if I am made president, I'm going to make Jesus head of elections and he'll (laughs) make sure that's, I mean, that's the equivalent of what, what Millet is saying, right? Like it's a literal proposal for how things should be done.
0: (laughs) That's I'm going to we got to stop there. I got to think more about this. This is too good. So uh, that that is an excellent point. So
1: I think we should we should award the what's more stupid award to the people of of the Netherlands, the USA yes. and Argentina for yes. elevating these nincompoops to, to power.
0: This is this is well said. Yes, absolutely. Right. That's the and then we could do We should. And we probably will do an episode kind of thinking throughout how that all happens, because, well, remember, our, I think the American public was a contestant for our I turkey, of, right, the turkey year, of the right? year. Right. So we yeah. are we are consistent in our thinking. So. Yeah. All right, all right, we've we gone should, way too long already. That's good, though. Why don't you remind everybody how they can stay connected with us and then we'll get out of Dodge.
1: Yeah. So thepoliticslab.com, you go there, you can, I've got, uh, like I said, three articles from The Economist on the Ukraine stuff, the stalemate stuff, and then uh, an obituary from the New York Times or from the Washington Post on Henry Kissinger that goes into some of his legacy. So uh, all of that, if you want to read more about it, you can find it at thepoliticslab.com.
0: That's fantastic. All right. I will see you next week, Phil. Bye, Bill. Have a good
1: last day of class.
0: Yes, you too. Bye, Phil. Bye.